Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project's first podcast. I am Kareem Farah, the co-founder and executive director of the Modern Classrooms Project, and I'm here with Zach. Hey, Kareem. I am a Modern Classrooms fellow from the 2019-2020 school year, and I'm a music teacher at DC International School. Fantastic. And we're just excited to be launching our first podcast. One of the things we realized, at least I realized, from an organizational perspective is our teachers have incredible stories to tell about their experience in the classroom, and folks want to learn more about what it's like to learn how to build a modern classroom, how our organization started, and some of the variances from teacher to teacher. So we thought a great way to do that would be to develop a podcast where we could interview and learn from other modern classrooms, implementers, and stakeholders around the country about how the model is actually manifesting in their classrooms, in their schools, and in their districts. Um, Zach, do you want to share a little bit about kind of what inspired you to think about starting a podcast with us and and what drove you to this decision? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. I think the thing that really got me thinking about a podcast was when I became a mentor for, for the Modern Classrooms Project, I was having these conversations with teachers and they were just such interesting conversations. You know, like the teachers would bring up concerns about the model. They would bring up concerns about their classroom, how they were teaching, all this different stuff. And I was just thinking how interesting that was. And I would like to share that, you know, and like these, the, the podcast is a really great medium for sharing those conversations. Um, and I also think that for other teachers that are maybe new to the model or even who are doing the training, hearing those conversations just sheds more light on on the model and the questions that can arise that we don't foresee um, having taught in the model and, you know, teachers in different districts that have different restrictions put on them and, you know, just different things that come up when you talk to different people. Um, and sharing that I thought would be a really cool idea. Yeah, I know. It's, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you actually brought it up to me a, a while back because, you know, in the end, teaching is just such a personal experience. Absolutely. There's so many unique constraints. Every classroom is its own ecosystem. So I think it's really hard to summarize a teacher's experience in an article um, or just like a, a tweet or, or, you know, just like some small setting like that. But I think the beauty of a podcast is you actually get to really hear the narrative, the experience, exactly. and it allows folks to understand. So I love the idea. We're excited to be launching this. This is one of hopefully many to come. Um, I'm going to give a, just a brief, brief background on myself, just so folks know who I am. Zach, hopefully you can do the same after that, and mm-hmm. then we can dig into our discussion. Um, so just so everyone knows who I am, I'm Kareem Farah. As I said, co-founder and executive director of the Modern Classrooms Project. Um, you know, I started building out the Modern Classrooms Project model with my co-founder about six and a half years ago in the classroom. We launched the organization around two and a half years ago, um, and then we've gotten to this point where now we're two and a half years old almost, training teachers across the country and the world, um, and our goal is to get this model out to as many teachers who want it. Cool. Yeah. And I think a lot of teachers do want it, especially right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I am a music teacher. I've been teaching music in the K through 12 world for five years now. And um, before that, I was teaching music actually in Lima, Peru. Um, I was teaching in a university and I was sort of developing the curriculum for that university. The, the music school was brand new. And um I got to learn a lot of really cool stuff about sort of alternative curriculum development that way. And that's sort of how I approach teaching. And I think that's part of what drew me to the model uh, in the first place, like the sort of like the opportunity to to look at teaching from a completely different viewpoint and, and, and change it up and try new and different things. Love it. And, you know, what I love about the fact that we're starting the podcast together is because a lot of folks ask, 
you know, can this model work in different settings and different classrooms and to be interviewing a teacher or be on a podcast with a teacher who, you know, launched this model in a music setting is now a mentor and a music teacher is just a perfect example of sort of the flexibility of the model. So I know we'll talk about that a little bit later in today's podcast, but it's, it's just great to be able to, to be here with you because you present such a unique perspective on the model um, at the onset. Yeah. And, and I'll say on that point too, I've, as a mentor, I've been working with some other music teachers. My class is general music, very sort of digital music making. Um, and I've been working with mentors who are music teachers in the tr- sort of traditional sense, like instrumental music. And we were having these long talks about like, how can you implement this self-paced model when there there are rehearsals, right, in a music classroom? Right. And that's, it was, it was so interesting um, to have these conversations because there's no real easy solution. But it was just the, like talking through that that got us to sort of. To, to interesting solutions to the problem. And I think that I, again, like those are the kinds of conversations that sort of got me to think about sharing this, these, yeah, these conversations that we were having and yeah, yeah it was very I love interesting. It. I love it. Alternative um, classroom settings. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be doing similar stuff with those science settings, those history settings, totally. those English settings, different grade levels, your elementary teachers. We're excited to continue to expand this out. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic. Well, Let's get started um, with some of kind of our core content. And, you know, today's podcast is kind of going to be split up into two phases. And the initial phase, we'll talk a little bit about sort of the origination of the organization, the background of the model, why the model was put in place, what inspired it. And then we're going to shift to more implementation questions. And that's when Zach's going to talk a lot about sort of how he learned the model um, and how he made it his own and his unique constraints. Um, So we're going to go ahead and get started with that. So I guess the first question is um, where where this model comes from and um, what sort of inspired you to to create the model and what got you here like in the first place where it is. It's a very different model from anything I've ever seen. And so I'm sort of curious as to like where the genesis of the model comes from, what inspired it. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we get that question fairly often. And when I think about the response, you know, whenever you sort of start something, you always want to be honest about what actually inspired it because it's easy to kind of think through the timeline and come up with arbitrary time points. To me, I always tell folks that the the model was birthed out of a problem. Um, I was an educator alongside my co-founder, Rob Barnett. We were both teaching at the same school, Eastern High School, um, here in the D.C. area. And we just fundamentally knew we weren't able to reach our students effectively. And it, I always tell folks, it's not like admin was telling me I wasn't reaching my students. There wasn't like, you know, some specific test that told me I was reaching my students. We were teaching in a high need environment. Um, proficiency rates were fairly low, huge diversity of learning levels. And our students were experiencing a ton of trauma. And when we stood in front of the room and tried to lecture, it was almost comically bad mm-hmm. how ineffective we were at meeting our students' needs. So, you know, in many ways, people learn the model kind of forward facing, blended, self-paced, mastery based. Um, but the origination of the model is almost in the reverse. So what my co-founder and I knew were that we current, we weren't assessing kids on mastery and kids weren't achieving mastery. So our brains kind of went to, okay, cool. Well, we need to get to mastery. Well, what do you need to create in a classroom environment to allow you to actually assess students on mastery? Well, you need some element of self-pacing. You need some kids to be able to move ahead because they've mastered skills while some kids are staying on the same lesson because they haven't. And then we say, okay, great. So we need to create an element of self-pacing. Well, how do you get to self-pacing? Well, you have to eliminate this concept of an in-person lecture. Right. That to us was always this massive bottleneck that was inherently limiting our capacity to innovate. It was so obvious to us at the time that like we cannot 
innovate if we are continuing to walk into our classrooms every single day, demanding kids to sit and listen to a lecture at the front of the room, regardless of their ability level, regardless if they're even there, <laughs> right? Because many of them are going to not be able to make it to the beginning of class. Right. And that's what inspired us to say, okay, we have to eliminate the lecture. You know, the, the interesting thing there was how do you do that? Um, you know, it wasn't all that obvious initially that we build our own instructional videos. You know, there's a lot of tools and programs out there that have existing kind of curriculum videos. YouTube's obviously a massive resource. And we had both tried elements of that, my co-founder and I. But what we had seen is when we built our own videos, engagement clearly spiked. Mm. We were able to personalize to our kids' needs. We knew the school or the district priorities. We knew what our kids knew and didn't know to some degree. And we found out that that kind of personal process of building an instructional video was the way that we wanted to replace the lectures. And yeah. that's what really inspired the model. We wanted to create a space that met students' needs. Um, and that's that's what inspired it. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm skipping a little bit ahead in the outline that we have here. But one of my questions for you is which of those three pillars, the mastery-based assessment, the self-pacing, or the blended learning comes first? And I, I think you just answered that question. Um, the problem is that you weren't assessing on mastery. Is that, am I hearing that right? Or Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about the model is folks inherently see the blended piece as like the bottleneck to doing the model. It's the mm -hmm. piece that like initially you're like, um, uh, how do I do that? Right? How do I eliminate the lecture? Right. So when folks receive the model and think about the model and want to implement their classrooms, the first thing most people think about is that building of an instructional video and kind of getting rid of that traditional lecture approach, which makes sense, right? Because initially that is what you have to do. That's the front loading of work that you have to do. It does make sense. Yeah. Right. But what you probably can tell from our discussion today is that that's not actually where the interesting kind of pedagogical shifts happen, right? The real pedagogical shifts happen when you rethink the concept of pacing, yes. where you rethink the notion that every kid has to be on the same thing at the same time. And then when you rethink the whole idea of how you assess kids, right, where you kind of get rid of this notion that you have to grade students on mastery, on completion and effort and sort of come up with this letter grade that's a mixture of a lot of random ideas, thoughts and concepts. And instead think about, you know, kids as truly learning skills and us focusing exclusively on whether or not they've actually learned that skill and then providing them with the revision and reassessment opportunities when you get there. So it's interesting kind of depending on the perspective that you're in sort of how you receive the model. Yeah. And well, I think that first of all, the problem that you, that you mentioned, like the, the, all the problems that you talk about, like that's not unique to Eastern, right? No. That's, that's obviously like, every school in the country is probably going through some degree of that, that sort of, um, that those challenges. Right. But when, when I did the, the, the training last summer, I actually put this in the feedback form. I was like, it's hard for me to see having done the training, the connection between those three pillars, they feel sort of compartmentalized and they don't feel related to me, but then having taught, it's like, once you pick one, they all fall right back into place. That's right. And I, I, I like that you started with mastery. Um, I personally, there's I, I, I take sort of two approaches to this. Um, not lecturing has for, for me has been like a dream. <laughs> I just think you talked about this in your article about um, the lecture bottleneck, but like it's just so much of a stressor in my day. Oh my goodness. To walk into the classroom and try and talk to twenty five kids at the same time. It's it's just it's just stressful. Yeah. But putting aside my own personal issues, it's like it's not the most effective way of teaching. So so eliminating the lecture means that you can self-pace and all right. the rest falls into place. Right. Um, 
Or the other approach that I've taken with some of my mentees is that self-pacing is the goal, right? right. Like you're teaching a meta skill, which yep. is, is not the content of your class. It's like the, the time management piece, learning to self-pace. And if you want to do that, well, you can't lecture because then you're sort of tying content to a day, yep. which doesn't, which doesn't um, work. And so I just thought it was interesting, having taught this way for a year now, how the three pieces fall into place once you, once you sort of pick one and, and go from there. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what's interesting about that too is none of these terms in isolation are new, right? Like, no. no you, people have been talking about blended learning, self-paced learning, and mastery-based grading for years. People have been talking about eliminating the lecture for years, right? There's clear evidence to show that when you lecture, students aren't particularly engaged, especially when it's a long lecture, and just the logic of it, right? You're obviously teaching to the middle. There's no possible way a human being can speak in front of a bunch of students and not teach the middle. Right. So, But I think what makes our model special and what we're proud about is the way they tie into each other, right? The way that they create a living and breathing instructional model it's not a strategy right it's not like a plug and play Mm -hmm. system i'm going to use this tool and suddenly something's going to happen because that's just not realistic it truly is a tie-in of three fundamental concepts that rethink the learning environment Um, and we hope right that in the end we can explain the model a million times over but as you said it isn't until you walk into the classroom and start doing that that you start to realize how they all fall into place, and you also start to realize how much more enjoyable teaching can become because of it. Yeah, um, you know, and I remember watching your first class, and it was just it was awesome to walk into your classroom and kind of see you standing there, and you were, you had this kind of smile on your face because you could tell you were just like, look at this, like kids are just controlling their learning environment. And one thing that spoke to me about your experience almost at the onset was you were just talking about how you could talk to the students individually and in small groups so much more. Yes. And you were loving teaching because of it. Right? Yes. Like that was bringing the experience to life. That got me really fired up, right? Because that was the point. The point was to create a world where teachers had a stronger connection with kids and can personalize to their needs more. Yeah. And, you know, I could see that in you the moment I walked into your classroom first quarter last year. Absolutely. I mean, like the, I've always enjoyed talking to the kids, but there's just so much, so much, so many like pressures on a teacher at any given moment in the classroom if it's not in this model because you know you have to deal with kids that are acting up or doing whatever like i don't know the the ability for me to just like go and sit with one kid or like two kids it was that's it just made such a big difference and i would have conversations that sometimes weren't even on topic like right and and that that was okay because those kids could catch up um and the other thing about you coming into my classroom was that i could stand there and talk to you for like 10 minutes and the kids would just be doing their thing Right. Like they were still learning. It wasn't it wasn't me slacking off. It wasn't me like not attending to the class because the class was happening. And, you know, what what's interesting about that is you talked about this idea of stress for teachers. Yeah. And we think about this as educators all the time and now organizational leaders like teachers are stressed. We were teachers for years. We were stressed. You know, I would always try to explain to my fiance, like it's hard to articulate to you why this job is so uniquely stressful. But when you walk into the building every single day, you are the single key link that determines whether or not your classes are going to go well. And that pressure is on you. And it includes you putting on a performance and it includes you like doing these different behavior management strategies and all these things. And that stress just grows. I think we drive teachers out of classrooms and buildings because of it. And one of the goals for us is to, to rethink that, right? To rethink whether or not the actual class time should be that stressful. And one of the things that we always saw, at least I saw as an educator, was the thing that scared me the most every day about teaching 
was just this idea that if I couldn't keep my kids engaged and in check, that my classroom would divulge into chaos, right? There was this feeling like, all right, I'm going to lecture. And like, I hope too many kids don't like interrupt me or act out. And I hope I don't get in sort of a power struggle with the child. And then other kids kind of chime in and suddenly the classroom doesn't feel like it's stable anymore and kids aren't learning. And that kind of, that entire sort of fear just disappeared when I started doing the model. Absolutely. Because all the planning went in on the front end, right? So it was like, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to work with my students on an individualized and small group basis. And if one or two kids decide that they're not having a good day and it might not be in their control, that's not going to disrupt the larger learning environment. And I'm not going to feel like I can't pivot to them. That was absolutely my experience too. I mean, I don't think that teachers realize how much we've internalized. I, I didn't realize how much I'd internalized the idea that a controlled classroom is a good classroom. Right. Like that's, that's just not the case necessarily. Obviously you right. don't want like there's certain things that can't be happening in the classroom, but like there's certain things that can and learning can still happen. And we, a lot of teachers would try and like stop kids from talking to each other or from maybe looking up something random that caught their curiosity in the internet. Like these things can happen in a classroom where there's productive learning happening at the same time. Right. Um, and, and yeah, the model allows that, you know, I feel like we've gotten completely, I, this is my fault. I got us off. Of the, no, I love it. I think we should keep doing that. We should, we should probably, define the actual model and talk about what the actual model is. <laughs> yeah, we probably should. So, I mean, the model is three core pillars, blended, self-paced, and mastery-based. And it's crisp and clear in that way because what we wanted to provide was something for teachers that was actionable, that was digestible, and that any teacher in any school environment could implement with a series of constraints, which mainly means that you would just have some level of technology for your students and for yourself. So the blended piece in, in very simple form is you're getting rid of traditional lectures. And I say this also confirming that you don't get rid of whole group experiences. Yeah. And you're eliminating that direct delivery of new information. Today, we're going to learn how to use a comma. Today, we're going to learn how to add fractions. Today, we're going to learn how World War I started, right? Those are these kind of like lecture experiences where you're delivering new information to students, and it just doesn't need to be delivered in a kind of in-person live setting, but can be transferred into an instructional video. Right. So that's the blended piece. In addition to that, what we, what we train teachers on and what we support teachers through is making sure that their learning management system is created effectively. Because to have an effective blended learning environment, you need to eliminate those lectures, and then you also also need this digital home base, Google Classroom, Canvas, Schoology, Seesaw, Google Sites, whatever it may be, that allows your students to seamlessly access content and go from one lesson to the next. That digital home base is so incredibly important because when you log in there, right, if, if as soon as a kid logs into your, your LMS, they don't know what to do, then like we talked about, a controlled chaos environment then just becomes total chaos. And you're fielding like a thousand questions about how to access things instead of fielding questions about rigor and having good discussions. So that's the blended piece. Once you build out blended learning, right, now you created this, this digital resource, you're building your own instructional videos, you're managing the LMS. Well, now you've unleashed the capacity of self-paced. There's nothing that requires a student to sit and listen to you introduce information. And that's when self-pacing gets unleashed. Now, what's cool about our model for self-pacing is we don't actually believe in self-pacing beyond one unit of study. In fact, we believe in self-pacing in short chunks. Some middle school and elementary teachers will go really short with their chunks one week at a time. Most folks do about a half a unit to a full unit. And at max, it's that full unit model. And, you know, it kind of depends on teacher, content area, grade level of the students as well. And, and you know, one of the reasons we built that that way, and it kind of, it kind of fell into our laps was 
myself and my co-founder, we were teaching in a traditional style school district. In other words, like, you know, there was nothing novel about the way quarters work, the way grading systems work, you know, all that good stuff, summative assessments. So we had to be able to build a model that would allow us to still stay in line with school and district priorities, but allowed us to innovate. And the way that we thought to do that was, okay, well, let's innovate within each unit, right? Let's figure out how we can build this out within each unit. So, you know, a couple core pillars within self-pacing is, you know, our teachers create either public pacing trackers or personal pacing trackers for kids to be able to know exactly where they're at in the unit, understand where the end deadlines are, understand when the entire unit finishes so we all move together. And then also this idea of lesson classifications, right? We all know, and the most common question we get about self-pacing is if you're only doing it within each unit of study, what happens when every kid doesn't master each lesson? It's a great question. And what our teachers do is they classify lessons. And the most common classifications are must do, should do, and aspire to do. So you have those lessons that every kid like really has to master to make it to the next unit. What are the lessons they should master theoretically if they're on grade level and able to tackle all the skills? And then you have your aspire to do's, right? What are those extension lessons that can kind of push learning to the next level for the folks that have mastered all the other lessons? So that's that uh you know, self-pacing structure. The final frontier, mastery-based grading. You know, once you allow flexible pacing, now I can literally say to a kid, hey, you're staying on lesson two. You haven't mastered this. You got to revise it. And the kid sitting right next to him, I can say, hey, you're going to lesson three because you did master that skill. So now I'm really thinking about student progress from a mastery standpoint and not from anything else. And I think what we try to do with mastery-based grading is keep it really simple and digestible for teachers. It's just the simple idea that when you assess a kid on mastery, you're deciding whether or not they learn the skill or not. And you have a short assessment exit ticket style, but we call them mastery checks at the end of each lesson that allow you to do that. You know, there's tons of literature and research about like different elements of competency-based and mastery-based grading that many of our teachers will then dig into after they learn our model. But for us, it was just the simple idea that a kid needs to show you that they've learned the skill before they move on to the next one. And it actually doesn't have to do with curriculum, which is why it's so interesting that I'm talking to you because you're a music teacher and we were mentoring you and training you as math teachers, right? And it wasn't because we like couldn't figure out anyone else to train. It was because it didn't matter that you were a music teacher because you were just learning a new instructional delivery model. And that's critical to our work as well as when we think about mastery-based grading or curriculum agnostic. We're training teachers how to build out the principles, the structures, and the policies around revision, reassessment, and reflection to actually assess students on mastery. So that's the, the model in a nutshell. I'm not sure that was in a nutshell considering <laughs> it took me a little while, but you know, I wanted to be thorough with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, I think that I, my, my next question for you here is what's different about the Modern Classrooms Project um, from other approaches that, that teachers are taught. And I, I think you sort of touched on one, which is that it's curriculum agnostic. And it's also, um, it's sort of, it's, it's, it can be implemented in any sort of administrative structure. Like there's right. nothing, that, it's just a, it's just a model. Um, and that, that's something that a lot of my mentees have been, we've had conversations around this. There's some concern about this stuff, but it always comes back to me telling them that it's really just a model for, getting content to your students. doesn't matter what the content is. doesn't matter when you do your summatives. doesn't matter what kind of summatives you do. Like none of that is affected by the model. Yeah. And the model is just so flexible. Right. And I mean, I think that's kind of, there's, there's, a different, there's a few ways you can think about how we're different. I think from, in a simple terms, um, you know, we can talk about each pillar. So like blended learning, we're the only instructional model I know of out there 
that actually invests in the idea of teachers building their own instructional videos. Yeah. Right? There are tools that teach you how to do that. There are organizations that focus on that because they offer a product. But living, breathing instructional model that starts with that, we don't know. So like that's one of the biggest unique components And um, so to start there. But I think the other main thing, as you said, was it's the level of flexibility. It's providing teachers with a clear structure, but then saying innovate within that structure. Yeah. Make it your own. I'm not here to tell you what chunk of pacing you should use. I'm certainly not here to tell you what mastery-based grading assessments you should use. And I'm certainly not here to tell you what you you should be putting in your videos. I just have a framework that I suggest you use that allows you to meet students' needs better. And I think that's really, you know, what separates us from a lot of the other organizations out there is its level of flexibility. And I think in turn makes it quite scalable. You know, as we speak right now, there's about 300 teachers in our mentorship program and over 10,000 teachers in our course. Yesterday, it was so exciting. I opened up the free course and tons of teachers were logging in from Nigeria, right? They're learning from Nigeria right now. That's an area of the world where theoretically I would not have been able to support educators just because I couldn't get out there, right? I wouldn't necessarily be able to to go and, and train folks in Nigeria. But what I think it tells me about the model now that we're in 105 different countries is it doesn't even matter where you are in the world. Right. You can actually learn this model from afar, digest it and then work on implementation, which is super, super cool. And then we also have 300 mentees, right? People who come through school and district contracts are paid individually. And those folks are across the country and they're in such different school environments. Right. I mean, right as we speak, we have rural Kansas representative. We have, you know, a school district in the mountains in Colorado that supports a high population of ELL students. We have a couple private schools that, you know, are, are on our contract list right now. We have your big urban districts. You have your small charter schools. You have your alternative academies. Again, sort of speaking to that flexibility, right? It can really go anywhere. Um, and, and that's by design. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been struggling to find the words to articulate that to my to my mentees. Like, this it's really it's it's very flexible. I think flexibility right. is a word that you and I can can throw around because we understand the model, but it takes teaching within the model almost to to understand just how much you can make this model fit just about anything. Well, and I mean I, I don't actually think it's just because you have to do the model, but I also think it speaks a little bit to how PDs operated prior to this point. And, right. You know, I think that in the end, I think teachers have been conditioned for years to think that PD is like a prescription do this this way right now or it's just pure philosophy right like right we believe in differentiation which i've said for years is the most overused and under executed term in education right we just like say a bunch of principles so i think it's actually new to most teachers and unfairly so when they learn a model and they're like wait so i have a bunch of flexibility but it provides me with structure it's so logical that we would think that's the case when you think about how different each classroom and each teacher is, but it's rarely a living, breathing component of professional development. Um, so I think part of it is just teachers kind of looking around and saying, oh, wait a minute, like this is actually designed for me to, to innovate within. Yeah. So I've, I have a framework and it usually goes too much in one direction or the other, too prescriptive or too loose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the the flexibility and that freedom catches a lot of teachers off guard. Um, absolutely. And they don't, they don't realize that they, that they can do that. It's like, can I, I get a lot of questions that my mentees, they ask me, can I do this? Or is it okay if I do this? And I'm always answering yes. Like I'm always answering yes. Absolutely. You know, I don't know if you remember when we had launched with your cohort of fellows in 1920 and, you know, as soon as the school year started it, within the first couple of weeks, I got a bunch of text messages from fellows. Mm-hmm. And the most common one was, am I allowed to do whole group discussion? Right. 
And, you know, every time I got that message, I, I literally laughed out loud. And the reason why was the first thing I thought of was like, let's say I decided to say no. Like, would you really listen to me? And why would you listen to me? Right? Like, don't listen to me if I tell you to do something that you don't think is right for your kids. Do what's best for your kids. Yeah. But more importantly, like, our model does not believe in not doing whole group instruction. It does not not believe in, you know, Paideia seminars, whole group instruct, uh, whole group discussions to start class periods, labs, all that good stuff. Right. And it's 100% up to the teacher when they think those are appropriate versus doing sort of your more skill-based, self-paced environment. But that speaks to your point, right? Where like teachers, I think, have a tendency to think like, I've been taught something, so I should replicate it. And if I don't, I maybe am making a mistake or out of line. And our hope is that teachers start to realize that they are the key agent of change, right? They are the people that should be making those important decisions in the classroom. And never would we suggest, you know, a teacher does otherwise. I, we have teachers as well. I'm sure you've seen this. Zach, where folks will say, you know, I don't know if I want to do a public pacing tracker. And they, they worry that we're going to say, well, no, you need to. Absolutely not. Do you need to? You right. can use the personal pacing tracker. You can rethink the way the pacing is delivered in general in entirety. The goal is just to create an environment where kids are on different lessons in the same unit. It's up to you how you structure that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that teachers are often caught off guard by that. And I also think that, like, for me personally, as a mentor, um, that that's sort of that, well that's part of the spirit of of the model and the organization i think uh respecting the autonomy of teachers which i i'm imagining comes from the fact that we are all we all are or have been teachers right um and we know how how good it feels to have our autonomy respected um yeah. we know what we're doing right you know we're we're the professionals there in the classroom and and the modern classrooms organization recognizes that in every teacher i mean it li- like you said, when you build an organization as teachers, it's the first thing you think about every single day, right? It's like, how do I ensure that our teachers feel good about themselves? And how do I ensure that our teachers feel like they're the ones that get to be the primary leaders and the innovators? Right. And I know that one of the things we're going to talk about is like, how are we scaling? the model? Like, how are we getting this model out there? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that speaks to this idea that our goal is to, to build a teacher driven movement. Like, this model doesn't exist and doesn't have traction unless teachers want to do it on their own accord and innovate. Um, you know, like someone asked me the other day, what happens if every teacher across the world just can pull this off for free and do it? And I said, then I think we've accomplished our mission and we're going to move on to new jobs, right? That no part of us wants to limit the capacity for teachers to build this model out in their own classrooms. It's why we built a free course that is now going pretty viral, which is exciting. Um, but in addition to that, like, Facebook group, for example, we have, you know, 1400 educators right now in this modern classrooms, Facebook group, and people are talking and discussing and answering each other's questions. Many of these educators, we did not train through the mentorship program, they learned the model through the free course and now bouncing ideas off each other. The teachers are driving the spread of this model, like 100%. All we're doing as an organization is just steering the ship a little bit. Yep, yep. Um, That I that's just so cool. I mean, I think that and that's that's the spirit that drew me into this into this I mean, I did the training. I love the training. But what made me really want to continue being a part of this of the organization and like keep working with you guys is just how like how positive you how how positively you regard the teachers, right? You know, like because that's in the classroom is where the change happens. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, and so I guess the challenges with inherent and sort of growing the model, especially when it blew up so quickly, um, you know. Uh, it's very different to do the training that I did, which was a week with you in a classroom in 
literally in a classroom um, for several hours every day. And you could, you know, I could walk over to you and show you my instructional videos. You were Rob. Uh, I could ask you questions. That's different from the experience that I'm having with my mentees. And it's obviously very different from the experience of those who are just taking the free course. And so what what do you think are um, some of the challenges in sort of dealing with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the challenges that deal with that, I think, in some ways, uh, connect a little bit to sort of both the, the beauty and the benefits of being a nonprofit, but then some of the challenges that are inherent to it. You know, the beauties of us founding a nonprofit is we have one clear exclusive goal to get this model in as many teachers' hands as possible who want to do it, which means we don't hide information, we don't hide content, and we would love if people could do our model without needing us. Right. I get so fired up when I open up the Facebook group and I see a teacher who I've never heard of, who didn't come with any contract, who like shares out their exemplar unit. And I open it up and it's like a beautiful chemistry unit on Google Classroom or Google Sites that they built that they did on their own accord and created. And that's extraordinary. Right. Like it's, it's just amazing to see that kind of level of inertia that's being built. And it, it isn't contingent on us. They're just using our free resources. So on one hand, there's this upside of scale, which is like. Anyone can access our materials. Anyone can do this model if they want to. On the flip side, though, as you mentioned, Zach, because you're both a mentor and you came through our very high-touch kind of fellowship model that's just for D.C.-based educators through an application process that's philanthropy-funded, is in the end, right, a lot of teachers do want a lot of constructive support. They want feedback on every single assignment. They want a person they continuously go to to discuss the challenges that they're seeing, the unique constraints that exist at their building level, the problems that they're running into during implementation. So we try to create a world that kind of balanced the two. So making sure that anyone can access our materials for free at any time was priority number one. That's the free course. We don't hide tutorials. But then we wanted to think, okay, what's the best way to actually support teachers at scale? What's the best way to create a space where teachers can get more support and and help? And we came up with this idea of a classroom of one, the virtual mentorship program. This idea that it's not going to be a bunch of, you know, in COVID-19 time, especially like a bunch of, you know, live sessions that we're hosting where we walk folks through the model. That's not only not effective, but it's like antithetical to the way that we exactly. built the model it's itself. contrary to the model, yeah. Exactly. So what we said was, look, we want to be able to provide teachers with a person they can go to who's an expert on the model consistently. They can go to when they need it. That's going to give them feedback in a competency-based way on the core components of the model. And that creates that sort of support system that isn't overbearing. And that's what led us to crafting the virtual mentorship program. And what we really like so far about the virtual mentorship program is it's lean. Right. It, it provides teachers a way to access this, but doesn't take over their days. It doesn't mean that they have to schedule 20 sessions of live PD, either in person or, or digitally, but instead can really control their own learning time, build out the model and have a great person to go to at all times that they build a relationship with. And what's super cool about that is it also allows us to empower our great educators. Right, I'm talking to you. You're a mentor. You were a fellow a year ago. Right. The reason why that's so cool is now our best implementers are now able to share their expertise with other teachers, kind of going back to the idea of a teacher-driven movement, right? Right, right, I now sit here and steer the ship, but it's you that's driving teacher learning, right? You're the one that has a caseload of mentees that you're supporting. It's not me, Um, and that was by design. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And it's been been great. I mean, I'm learning more about the model. Everybody always says that, and it's true that you you learn best by teaching something. Right. Um, Yeah. Super cool. Um, And so I guess... Part of growing um, 
is is transitioning into a sort of a more online and universally accessible model of of content delivery and i i think that relates also to what's happening right now um in in the classroom with our students we're all sort of learning how to do distance learning um you know it's july of 2020 right (laughs) um we're dating ourselves now but like the you know distance learning is is I mean, a lot of people have sort of flocked to the modern classrooms because they see those keywords, the buzzwords, right? Blended learning, video lessons, things like that. Um, yep. But, you know, modern classrooms, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was really sort of designed as a classroom model to be oh, to goodness, be implemented yeah. in the classroom. And so yeah. I'm curious how you've seen the transition of modern classrooms into a distance learning model or if, or if you don't think it has, if it, if it just fits well in distance learning as well as in the classroom. Yeah. Wonderful question. I'm glad you brought this up. I, you know, and I and I like to be careful about not spending too much time on distance learning because I think it's it can be dangerous to get obsessed with it. But yes. I think it's an important thing to address. You know, in the spirit of the way that the modern classrooms model was built, right? The, we built it because we saw a problem, we tried to address it, and then we realized other people wanted more of it. It's kind of a similar pathway to why a lot of people are coming to us to distance learning. You know, schools closed in the March time, and my co-founder and I looked around. and We said well, this is going to be tough and interesting to see what happens. And what we saw immediately was all of you reaching out to us, our current fellows in the D.C. area saying, hey, we're good, but our colleagues are not. Yeah. What can we provide them? And that immediately spoke to me. It said, oh, wow, like we didn't realize this, but we actually have a model that isn't meant for distance learning, that isn't a remote instruction model and is undoubtedly at its best in person. But the way I describe it to folks is it stomachs the blows of distance learning and remote instruction way better than any model I've seen out there thus far. Yeah. Where you as a teacher know, yeah, this isn't ideal, but but this is probably the best I'm going to be able to do with remote and distance learning. And when that happened, it was funny because, you know, one of your colleagues, former colleagues who's now in Florida, Montanique Woodard, you know, she wrote a piece almost instantaneously called the pandemic proof approach to teaching. And that piece just kind of articulated that she made that transition seamlessly. It didn't mean that engagement was perfect. It didn't mean that all kids had great access. It didn't mean that the learning environment was as strong as when she was in person. What it meant was she quickly pivoted from in-person to remote, didn't find planning challenges that were too extreme, and also found that the majority of her students were able to digest the learning environment even though she wasn't there. Yeah. So I think that speaks to the flexibility, right? It's like the model is incredibly durable, but flexible at the same time. And, you know, the the fact that your own teacher is building the instructional videos is also just so important in an incredibly impersonal environment like remote teaching and distance learning. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you bring it back to that flexibility and the sort of the the way that the the model can be implemented in any sort of uh, environment. Right. You know, it, it doesn't it's not tied to the classroom in the same way that it's not tied to the, the quarterly schedule or anything like that. That's right. a really interesting connection that I never they never thought of. Yeah. And, you know, I tell every single potential school or district partner who reaches out or any teacher who wants to do the mentorship program. Don't pay a dime for our model if you don't want your teachers to implement it post COVID-19. Right. Right. It's too challenging and too thrilling and too kind of interesting, in my opinion, to use it as sort of a solution to a short term problem. Totally. But if what drew you to the model is the fact that you have to innovate in the short term to stay afloat during COVID-19 challenges. Um, you know, what I want to do now, if it's all right with you, Zach, cause I, I really like to pivot and then talk a little bit more about sort of what you, your experience was learning the model, because in the end, I think 
hopefully the majority of people that that are going to listen to our podcast are going to be educators who want to get a feel for that that transition. Sure. Um, so do you mind if I kind of run through some questions with you and kind of just learn a little bit more and have you share a little bit more about how you kind of made the shift Absolutely. Um, from traditional to modern? Great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what drew you to the model because, you know, you came through the fellowship which was in very many ways like a targeted recruitment approach where we knew at your school, DC International Charter School, that we wanted to you know, build a cohort there. So right. to some degree, like we kind of like found you, but you opted in, right? You had a bunch of teachers, like 70 teachers at DC International Charter School, but we only trained nine in that cohort. So what for you was like drew you initially to being like, I want to do this model. I want to try this. I want to like take that first leap. Yeah, I mean, I... I learned about the the opportunity from one of those like PD blasts that we get from our administrators. Um, but the administrator that it came from was Shane. And I have had a lot of talks with Shane. Shane and I were hired at the same time. Um, I really respect Shane Donovan. He's a great educator. And so because it was him blasting out that opportunity, I was interested. Um, and so I started looking into the model. You remember I, I came to visit your classroom um, I do. And I was just into it. Like I literally that day I got back from that visit to Eastern and I put up a pacing tracker, not, not, um, it wasn't a pacing tracker according to the model. It was just basically saying like, you should be working on this today. If you're not, you're behind. If you're ahead, you're ahead. Um, but I was like, this is really cool. And it was, um, it was one of those experiences where you see something and you just immediately in your head, you, you, it's, it sort of fits around what you already know. Does that make right. sense? Like it yeah. resonated with me. Of course. And, um, and so, yeah, I, 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 it, that's, that's what drew me to the model. That sort of feeling of like, yeah, I, I get this and I can see it happening in my classroom. And I, I didn't, I was a little apprehensive about the self-pacing piece. I didn't realize, um, I didn't fully comprehend what that meant. Um, and I was a little bit scared. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, sure. Good. I think most teachers probably are. Yeah. Uh, I have been completely convinced at this point. And, you know, it took about a week of teaching in the modern classrooms model um, in my classroom to to not be scared anymore. Yeah, right. You know what I love about that answer? And, you know, I've never even I don't think I've ever asked you that, which is my mistake. Um, but what I love about that answer is it speaks to this overarching goal of a teacher to teacher driven movement. Right. When you describe what drew you to the model, it wasn't an admin who told you you need to do it. It wasn't like, you know, you read a research article that says you had to do something. It was a, a colleague of yours who you respected as an educator saying, I think you should consider this. Yeah. And then it was you walking into a classroom that was doing it and saying, that's something I want to do. It kind of just speaks to our goal, right? Of like teachers pushing other teachers to innovate and them kind of creating the innovation themselves and inspiring it, like coming from the side kind of structure. I just, it, it makes me happy to, to know that that's how it was inspired for you. It's, it's, it's a fantastic thing. Absolutely. And I think that it's, you know, teachers probably feel that real change and, and the, the positive things that happen in our classrooms come about that way. I know I, I did, uh, as I was in my first couple of years of teaching my, my, like the, the experiences that most helped me improve my teaching were watching good teachers. Yep. It didn't come from PD. It didn't come from the top down in terms of admin telling me what to do. Not even my instructional coach. Like my instructional coach works with me in different ways and we do other things. But like my my own learning was like the, the biggest changes that happened in my classroom came because I saw another teacher do something. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I mean, and, and you know, when you say that, the model was inspired by that structure as well. I, I didn't say this in my initial introduction, but I was teaching at Eastern and I wasn't sure 
I was going to stay in the classroom anymore. And this was back in 2016, but I just knew I wasn't meeting my students' needs. I was teaching algebra two. The kids did not like the way I was teaching. I was teaching traditionally. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I walked into my co-founder's room, Rob Barnett. And I remember that day to a T. I walked into his classroom. He was already building instructional videos. In many ways, he is the originator of the model. And I walked in there and I was like, wait a minute. Like, I don't have to do it that other way. And that night, just how you kind of went to your classroom after you saw mine and built a pacing tracker that was like a version of what you now have, that night I recorded my first instructional video because I saw him do that and I was like, holy moly, I think something real is right there and I'm just going to start building. So again, that inspiration by just walking into other classrooms and seeing what they're like, I think is just so, so powerful. Yeah, because it sort of shatters that sort of like preconceived notion of what good teaching is. Which right. we which we all have, and and you you can walk into some other teacher's classroom, and they're just like doing their thing, and you're like, whoa, that I never even thought you could do that. Right, that's exactly right. And t- tell me a little bit more, like what problems were you seeing pre implementation, right before you learned the model? Like, what were the things that you wanted to see, kind of shift and get better in your classroom? Um, and and kind of talk to me a little bit about how the model then got you there. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to the things that you were seeing before. I think that lecturing, um, I I knew it instinctively and i also knew it in certain ways like very explicitly like lecturing doesn't work um i would just stand there and lecture and the majority of me of the words that i was saying were like be quiet (laughs) like stop talking um and that's not productive for anyone um i wanted to also be able to um you know i i think that teachers are often told that we should be developing relationships with kids in the classroom um it's not entirely it wasn't entirely clear to me what that meant um but relationships with kids now is such an important thing for me and that was something that i was trying to improve on it was just this you know being able to hang out with the kids and like talk to them and have a positive interaction with a kid is so much more productive even if they're not learning anything it's just so much more important especially in middle school to have a positive interaction rather than like a, a negative one where you're telling them to be quiet right um and that was something that i wanted uh and i also i also think that um Breaking down my project, I do project-based learning, and breaking down the projects into steps uh, was also something that I was trying to figure out how to do, like in practice, what to actually you know do. And the model gave me that too, because by setting the pace, I had to basically say, by this day, you should be here. And that forced me to think about what it means to be here in the project and break it into steps that you could translate into a, into a progression rather than like a, a project. Yeah, and I love that. And you know, what, what screams to me... <laughs> It's, and it's so important. And like, honestly, I, I don't even think we do a very good job yet of articulating how important this is and how much it comes to life in our model is this idea of relationship building with students. You know, that is just in the end, the heartbeat of every single great teacher in every single great classroom. And I'm actually just looking at one of the data points now from our most recent Johns Hopkins study that compared, you know, traditional teachers to modern classrooms, teachers in the same building. And one of our favorite data points to show that we have a model that might be really working, but also one of the ones that I think speaks to how concerning traditional instruction is, is only 19% of traditional teachers thought that they were able to work closely with each of their students during class. And 86% of our educators said that. And that simple concept, right, that every day in class, I get to work closely with my students. It might be a one to two minute interaction. It might be a seven to 10 minute interaction. But the notion that my kids feel my presence and know that I'm there for them and can communicate with them on topic or off topic is so hugely important 
yeah. to relationship building. You know, I remember learning about relationship building when I taught traditionally and like so many strategies were thrown at me. Like, you know, like bingo boards in the beginning of, of the school year and all these different structures. And now when people ask me, like, how do you ensure you build strong relationships with students? I have very one very simple answer. Talk to them. Yeah. Right. It's that is how you build relationships with anyone. Yep. You just talk to them. You get to know them. They get to know you. But that's so hard to say to a teacher who teaches traditionally because they're like, when am I talking to them? Right. But then when you do our model, it's like, oh, you're talking to them throughout the class period. That's when you're talking to them. Yeah. And also, I think that it's hard to to go over and talk to a kid that you've just yelled at. Right. Previously, you know, like I, you know, it's like, how can they how do they see you? You know, Um, and that's why getting rid of the lecture really opens up those possibilities, especially with tougher kids. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that that was that was the biggest thing for me honestly it was basically like i had this sort of very lighthearted feeling of of my kids coming to the classroom and i would go and sit and hang out with them right which is the words that i would use to describe what i was doing that doesn't right. sound like teaching but you know like i had i remember having this conversation with a kid about exponents um and i teach music right but uh one of the things in in music is that notes are divided up by the powers of two so like two squared two cubed two to the fourth etc Right. One, two, four, eight, sixteen. And so like the curiosity of a of a child will lead you down those paths yeah. that you would never ever have, have thought to to think about, right? right? Or to to talk to a kid about in a music class. Um and I, you know, I understand exponents well enough to I'm not a math teacher, but I can explain exponents. And it was a in a seventh grader and it was just like, you know, when we talk about not silencing student voices, like raising student voices, it's just it's just letting them talk. That's what it means. Yeah. It's not complicated. It's 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 not. It's it's complicated when you don't have the freedom to do it. Exactly. It's because like you you're restricted by the way that you teach to not realize that you can do that. Exactly. I mean, if you if you ask a college professor who lectures in front of 150 students a day, uh, do you build relationships with students? They'd say no way. Right. Well, it's not that different if you're lecturing in front of 25 or 35 students and 150, right? It's still impossible to functionally build that strong of a relationship with each individual kid. And you know, I, I say this. I will never forget again walking into your classroom the first time I did because I saw you kind of glowing in a way where I was like, he's really happy. Yeah. Right? That was the first thing that spoke to me. It was like, Zach is happy as the teacher. And it was so obvious the reason was because you were just interacting with kids, right? You right. were just doing what you did, what you came into the profession for in the first place, right. which was to cultivate great relationships with kids, inspire curiosity, and teach content. Um, so that was super, super cool to see. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about challenges. I mean, it, it would be silly if we if we sat here and pretended like it was just this like extremely easy journey where you know you spent one week with us in a in a classroom learning the model and then suddenly your classroom completely changed. What are the things that were difficult about making the transition? Yeah, you know, I like this is a tough question for me because in a lot of ways, in in all the ways that I can think of off the top of my head, the model felt easier. Uh, just as a, in terms of my profession, in terms of the teaching profession, it's just an easier way to teach. There right. aren't, there weren't that many big challenges. Um, I will say that like, I tend to get caught up in video editing and I have also worked with a lot of mentees who are perfectionists with their videos. Right. Um, that is a challenge in the sense of like, I don't want to put out something that I'm not happy with, yeah. but it, it took me realizing how little the students care 
right. to kind of overcome that. And also like being okay with my kids being like, this is super cringy, Mr. Diamond. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just like, okay, whatever. It's And you know, it speaks to this idea of the evidence shows that the more personal a video is, the more engaging it is. Yeah. And yeah. what people forget is like being personal also means being ridiculous yep. or not perfect or uh, making mistakes, right? I remember making literally computational errors in my first videos and then just dropping an ad puzzle question in or telling the kids, hey, find my mistake in lesson four. Yep, I would do that too. I would, I, with the sixth graders that I taught, I would be like, if you can find the mistake, come and find me and I'll give you a high five. Right. And, and they would all be like, they would walk over to me and put their hand up in the air and I'd be like, what are you doing? Right. And they'd be like, I find the mistake. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And I give them a high five. It's exactly. just like, and I've, and I've mentioned this to a lot of the mentees that I, that I work with too. It's like, don't worry about the mistakes. Like I, I, I literally put in the feedback journal. I love that you left in the mistake. Correct. Because it makes it your video. You know, we, Rob and I used to talk about this, Rob being the co-founder, you know, we talk about like our exemplar units. We always, we're trying to feature more exemplar units. Whenever teachers build great units, we're like, Hey, let us know so we can make an exemplar of it and show it to other teachers if you're comfortable. And one thing we made sure to do was like Rob and I talked about like, do we need to like make them super professional? Do we need to like do advanced video editing? Do we need to like brand it? And we were like, no. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Because what most teachers know about video instruction are the big companies or the massive nonprofits that generate mass produced, extremely professional, extremely crisp videos. Right. So if I'm a teacher and I'm learning the model and I show up to the free course of the mentorship program and all I see is a bunch of ridiculously greatly made perfect instructional videos that are professional, I'm going to look back and be like, I can't achieve that. And you're not wrong. I couldn't achieve it. None of my videos look all that perfect and professional. So I think that idea of like making it personal but also allowing teachers to understand that the imperfection is not only natural, but it's important for the experience. It's what makes it personal. And like you said, it just doesn't matter that much. Right. The bulk of the learning experience is not them watching the video. The videos are six to nine minutes long at most. The bulk of the experience is the fact that they're in a self-paced classroom working towards mastery. And I think that the more teachers recognize it, actually the less they stress about the model. They're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm just putting together a screencast that would be a rehearsal of my lecture, but shorter. And that's it. Okay, so you were talking about this previously when we talked about transitioning into distance learning. I, I have this vivid memory of the staff meeting that we had. Uh, it was the Tuesday before the last day. Of the, it was the last week of school, Tuesday, right? right? We were told that we were going to close school. We had to put all of our lessons online as videos. And there was 150 teachers in the room, right? And they were like, the, there was this like anxiety and just stress in the air. Like the teachers were not happy, yeah. but there were, you know, nine of us that were looking around like, we have got this, <laughs> like this right. is not hard. And I wanted to say like to the teachers, I wanted to be like, look, you already do this, right? This isn't, this isn't different. You know, you stand in front of the class and I'm sure you make mistakes. I'm sure that a lot of your time is spent telling kids to be quiet. What's the worst that could happen in your videos? All you do is give the presentation to your computer and pretend that your computer is a perfectly silent class of 20 kids. Right. Uh, it's, it's like it's not a huge mindset shift um, unless you think of it that way, which you, which you don't have to. Right. It's, it's not. And then even, you know, some of the pushback we get sometimes is folks that do PBL, project based learning yeah. or inquiry based learning, because they think like, oh, I have to make a video for every single lesson. We say, no, like the video is replacing whole group delivery of information. Right. That's it. 
So make a video when you would normally say everyone listen to me for five minutes or three minutes or seven minutes. And I think once people realize that, like it, all it is is just taking what you said at the front of the room, accompanying it with visuals and making a quick screencast. They realize that it's, it's a living, breathing part of what they do. All they need to do is figure out how to just record themselves. And that's not that hard, right? We live in a totally digital age yeah. right, where everyone's recording everything. So it, once folks kind of break down that barrier, you know, I think in your case, you probably had a little bit easier of a transition because you're quite tech savvy. Um, you know, I think I would imagine some listeners right now and, and many people that are learning this model as we speak, right? Like don't have as much tech experience as you did in particular. Right. Um, so, you know, that can oftentimes be an initial barrier. But what we tell folks with that is like anything like that is a steep learning curve. And technology is like uniquely frustrating to learn sometimes, right? Because when it doesn't work, it feels like there's this like evil beast on the other end of the technology that's like playing tricks on you. And I think in the end, once folks realize that that learning curve is steep, but you will get there. And then once you get comfortable with it, it becomes just an automatic living, breathing component of how you teach. Then there's some relief. So, you know, I think you were a little bit immune to one of the most common challenges, which was that. Yeah, I, I will admit that that's, uh, the tech side of things is kind of my my gem. I'm really into yes. that. And I actually do edit my videos and make them like pretty, pretty involved in terms of the, the actual video, video creation piece. Right. Um, but like fundamentally, it's still teaching. You know, the, the hard part is for me is still planning lessons and planning units that that make sense in terms of the learning progression, you know. Right. Uh, and if you can do that, you've done the hard part. You know, that's what being a teacher is. Yeah. And if you can deliver that lecture, uh, if you if you were going to do it in the classroom, you can you can you can screencast it. Um, I've had some of my mentees just set up Zoom calls with themselves and screen record, like screen share on a recorded Zoom call. Right. Like that. It's it's interesting. That's almost more complicated than using something like Screencast-O-Matic because there's more steps involved. But like, it's just something that people are familiar with. And you know, I've been trying to find ways to like make that less complicated and, and have that stop being a barrier because really all that matters is that you're talking and showing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I want to, before we close out today, since I know we've, we've gone almost an hour so far, it shows you how easy it is to just talk about the model. I love it. Yeah. I wanted to talk briefly about two things. First, I wanted to talk about, I think if I remember correctly watching your classroom a bunch of times, one of the challenges you did face initially was this idea of student motivation and kids falling behind. Yeah. Um, I remember pretty early on, right, you know, a good portion of your kids weren't mastering the skills at the pace that you had wanted them to. And you were kind of piecing it like, what do I do, right, which is a common fear, teachers will start to freeze initially. And I know you and I talked a lot about this idea of failing forward, right, like struggling and then learning from your mistakes. Can you talk about sort of the experience with that challenge, and then sort of how you started to realize from there that the best way a kid's going to learn from their mistakes is actually by making the mistake. Yeah. Uh, so a couple things. That was my sixth grade classroom. It was it was quite amazing to me the difference between uh, the model in a sixth grade classroom and a and a seventh or eighth grade classroom. Um, right. I, I feel like that shift into the middle school world is is a big deal, and the kids are young, and yeah. Um, so that was a challenge. I will. I, I did the model the same way for both, and I had to change it up. Yeah. Um. I, I think that. Part of the reason that I, you know, I was looking for solutions within the model, but part of the reason that it didn't like concern me on a deep, like fundamental level was that these were kids that probably wouldn't have been succeeding in a traditional model anyway. Mm -hmm. And the model was just sort of shining a light on that. Right. Um, and so it, I didn't know what to do, but I did know something that I hadn't known before. Does that right. make sense? It was yes. like, now I know that this particular kid 
isn't making enough progress. Had I been lecturing every single day, they might actually have been passing. <laughs> like they might yeah. actually have been like doing something, right. which got me to basically say, yeah, okay, whatever. You got it. You got it yeah. the lowest grade, but you did it. Yeah. Right. Um, but in the, in the self-paced model where they weren't making any progress, they weren't submitting any mastery checks or they kept submitting the same one and it kept being wrong. The, the falling forward was me sort of saying, okay, now I see that, right? What do I do for those kids? Right. Um, in, in the sixth grade classroom, sort of as a, as a general proposition, what I did was to set aside the first 10 minutes of class for video watching. Yep. Um, so there was a little bit more structure yeah. for my seventh and eighth graders. And the way that I started the year with everyone was just sort of like everyone walked in and just, it just started. Everyone just do whatever. Right. Um, and I think that sixth graders need a little bit more structure than that. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think the other big thing that, you know, I, I would get a lot of times a question where, you know, I taught 12th graders, right? So you would get visitors walk into the classroom when you guys popped into the classroom to watch my class when I was still teaching, you know, one question I got was if I had 25 kids in class, depending on the class period, maybe three or four kids would be just like distracted on their phone at any given time for a chunk of time. And I would get a common question that would say, you know, what do you do about that? Like, do you, what do you, don't, don't you tell them like to get off their phones? And I always would tell people, no, what I would do is I'd walk up to them and say, Hey, can you tell me what you're doing right now? And they'd say, well, I'm on my phone watching a music video. And I'd say, okay, well, do you think that's a, the right move right now? Is that going to put you in the position to be successful? And in some cases they say, no, I'm on pace. I think I'm going to be fine. I'm just taking a mental break. And I'd say, cool. And then in some cases I'd say, well, no, you're actually behind two lessons. So this is probably not a great decision for you. I'm not going to grab your phone. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm just pointing out to you that you're behind two lessons and currently you have a great opportunity to, to, to make progress and you're choosing to do something else. And the beauty of those conversations, and you and I used to talk about this, is like you're stopping a kid from actually learning that lesson when you take the phone away, yeah. right? Or when you stop them or, or, or start to micromanage. In some cases you have to, right? You're running a classroom. You got you to gotta maintain a certain level of structure. But when you can, let kids fail forward. Right When you can, let a kid themselves realize, if I'm going to play Fortnite for 30 minutes in class, I am going to fall behind and I am not going to make progress in this class. So that the next time they're in that situation, they actually have a real example for themselves to be like, the last time I played Fortnite for 30 minutes, I bombed the test and couldn't actually make it through the unit. Right, And that process is a little bit jarring for some teachers because I think when they start, it's like, what do you mean? So I'm just going to like let them struggle? Yes. Yeah. That is exactly yeah. what you're going to do. Yeah. And I think, so a couple of things I, I, we didn't talk too much in this, this entire episode actually about the idea of metacognitive, like reflection and thinking about your learning, which is such a big part of being a student in this model. Right. You know, like I, I do build in like specific checkpoints where I'm like, how do you think you've been doing in terms of pacing? How do you think you've been doing in terms of learning and blah, blah, blah. But, but just a kid on their own will look at the pacing tracker and be like, whoa, how did I get three lessons behind? I think a lot of kids don't have a very good, especially younger kids. I don't know about high schoolers, but they don't have a very good sense of how their actions today will affect their entire progression through the unit. You know, and it's easy to say like, oh, I have two months to finish this. Well, actually, two months is a really long time. It would never be that long. But I have six weeks to finish this project. I'm just going to, you know, slack off today. But then you're a lesson behind for the whole rest of the, of the way. Right. And you have to catch up at some point. And I think that after my first unit, a lot of kids did poorly on the very first unit. And then in the second unit, they started off and they're like, okay, I'm going to be on pace this time. Yep. They learned it themselves. I didn't have to teach them or say anything. And like you said, I didn't have to micromanage them at all. They just figured it out. And at the beginning, um, I was a little anxious because of so many of them being so far behind. But, but it was like, 
that being behind, it wasn't on me. I didn't feel like it was on me. Right. The pacing tracker gives you this data. Right. You know, it gives you this sort of like very objective. Look, you're not on lesson five yet. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what you were doing. doesn't matter what you were doing. You're not there yet. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, what I also think that screams out, which I don't think we've spent that much time talking today about, is this idea of metacognition. Yeah. And, like, you know, when you teach in a traditional setting, it's really harder to cultivate metacognition. It almost feels forced, right? Like, I'm just going to do my reflection survey at the end of the unit. But I think what you realize when you do a model like this and when you actually empower students to control their own pace, like, what you're actually seeing is kids constantly engaging in metacognition, right? Constantly asking themselves, like, did I use my time effectively today? Why am I behind two lessons? Why am I ahead two lessons? And that process is where so much growth is happening, particularly in those 21st century skills, self-regulation, self-management. You know, those are the things that we need our kids to have when they leave our classrooms, right? Those are the things that are most translatable. We don't know if your kids are ever going to really use the music that you're teaching them. I never knew if my kids are actually going to use the algebra too. I was teaching them. But what I knew was they were going to grow as self-directed young adults in my classroom. Yep. And that was so, so important. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to ask about is sort of in your experience working with mentees, right? You're a mentor. You have a, a, a group of teachers from all these different places that you're currently training. And like, what are the most common pieces of feedback you're giving those mentors? What are the things in, in, in many ways, like as we close out this podcast today, like what are kind of the lasting pieces of feedback? If you could tell teachers right now, like as they start to learn this model, what would you want to tell them as they dig, dig into it? Totally. Um, the, the, two, the, the two big ones, the really big ones, are um, to just sum them up quickly and then I'll go into a little bit more detail. So number one is keep your lesson videos short. Yeah. And number two is keep your LMS clean. Right. Um, so the, shorten it, the shortness of your video doesn't come down to like, I remember when I was doing the training, I was like, like just painstakingly editing out when I was saying um and ah and like rephrasing things. That's not how you make your videos short. The, right. the way that you make your videos short, and this is where it comes back to the pedagogical side of things, is that you need to chunk the lessons into small bits. Yes. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about three different topics because that's kids can't retain that. And also, it makes it harder on the mastery check for you to actually determine if they've mastered something. So keeping the videos short is, is sort of like my – it's a proxy for me saying you need to chunk your lessons up more. Right. And, and I, I – I got to the point at the end of the school year, uh, this last year, where I was making videos that were two minutes long, and the task was just insanely simple. If that makes sense, chunking these lessons into much, much smaller pieces, that's how you keep your videos short. Um, so the other one is the LMS. The LMS is so important. You know, like the, I've seen a lot of really chaotic looking LMSs, and there's just so much, like there's this sort of burden of thought that goes into finding work. Mm-hmm. when the LMS isn't organized. And that's thought that could be going into learning the content, right? Yeah. that's We don't want our kids learning how to find their way around Google Classroom. That's not the skill. That's not the content. Um, and and I think the key is organizing the, the unit in a linear way. So, so you can't, like, deviate from the path. You have to follow the path through the lessons. If there's only one path through the lessons, you're not being sent out to other places on the LMS or other places on the internet without very clear instruction of what to do there and how to get back. Um, the, the LMS, it's especially in distance learning, the LMS is like the portal to our content mm-hmm. for the kids. And I think that having a linear 
structure to your lessons in in your LMS minus Google Classroom, but Canvas too. Canvas is actually great because there's like a next button. Um, you just like make you set your pages up, and then you just hit next, and right. <laughs> it walks you right through it. But um, the things that are on those pages, or in my case in Classroom, the things that are in those lessons have to be a single task. Right. And so like the the LMS just walks you intuitively through the tasks. Right. That's that's such an important piece. Not just to this model, just to teaching in general. But yeah, yeah you know, and I, I'm glad you bring that up. It's a great way to close because I think what it speaks to is like, while that's so important, the beauty of that is the solution is simplicity, right? Which is a great thing. You know, when you're when the solution is simplicity, that's a great situation to be in. Be very careful, sort of, with all the bells and whistles that exist in a lot of these tech programs. Focus on simplicity, and I tell folks all the time, like, what needs to be able to happen is I as a person who maybe knows nothing about your classroom needs to logically understand how I go from one lesson to the next. And it should be like, if I had to make one decision next, what would it be? And that decision should be the next logical one in the linear path, right? Totally. It should just be that simple. And and I always tell folks like the simplicity of your LMS has nothing to do with the rigor of your content, right? I can make the most rigorous assignment on the planet and it can be just one line item on an LMS that's super, super simple. Um, So keeping that in mind is is critical. Yeah, I have have one mentee who's into RPGs and gaming and she made a dungeon map for her unit, which I think was such a cool thing to do. Right. And, and one of the things about games, right, especially the maps, is how, is how obvious the next step is. Right. The challenge is not getting to the next step. It's actually, like, beating the level, right? It's not like, how do I go from this stage to this stage? It's how I actually beat the stage itself. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to kind of compare that to gamification because I think games in very many ways operate in the self-directed learning experience, right, where people are just, like, learning how to get through a, a game. Totally. And they're learning all these skills and getting better at it. And the more that we can actually turn classrooms a little bit into that, I think the more engaging they'll be and the more self-directed kids will be so i think that's fantastic yeah, and that's that's the goal right that's the goal that's how you achieve real learning yeah exactly well zach um this is our first podcast and i gotta say i had a fantastic time um <laughs> you know we talked for over an hour and it felt like it was 10 minutes of, of talking time because it went by so fast it did um, yeah really so it, it speaks to the reason why we want to start this this is just the beginning we're going to be so excited to loop in other stakeholders other educators content areas grade levels this is just the beginning um and listeners i hope that you found this useful and exciting you know if you ever want to access more information about our work obviously our website www.modernclassrooms.org and then our free course learn.modernclassrooms.org is where you can access that also you know we have our facebook group which has been super super interesting tons of folks collaborating on there as well um so you know those are all places you can go to learn more but other than that zach it's been great chatting with you and and excited to do many more of these with you yep absolutely perfect well there it is all right zach great talking to you and uh excited for the next one yep take it easy kareem see ya